Hello, everybody. Think of racial and environmental justice. Now think of Native Americans. What does racial or environmental justice mean in the context of Native Americans who, as you know, were forcibly displaced from their homelands? You're about to find out. Dina Gillio Whitaker is a scholar in American studies and herself a Native American. Hello, everybody. This video is a long time in, in the making. I have long wanted to bring someone here who could talk with us about indigenous justice and who had a great background for it. And we have lucked out to get Dina Gillio Whitaker to talk with us. She's a lecturer of American Indian Studies at California State University, San Marcos. Is again, an educator in American Indian environmental policy, author of two books. And I will, we will post information about her books in the show notes at the bottom of the video. So welcome, Dina. Good morning, Dr. Jean, or I guess it's good afternoon. It's nice to meet you. I'm delighted to meet you. Okay, so this, I'm surprised at the anxiety I'm starting to feel about this topic because we all know that, or most of us know that the United States is listed on genocide watch as a country having committed genocide with the Native American population. And I have wanted to address this in our podcast and have done a few shows about it, but we haven't really dug as deep as I'm imagining we're going to go here on this. So let's start with you and your background. Tell us about your growing up, your affiliation with the Native American community, whether that's even the correct term, what is the term? Cause you know, terms comes and goes. So tell us about yourself. Sure. So I will start by introducing myself and formally in a cultural way that I usually do. And um, I say, I do that by saying, why Whitaker. And uh, that's just a, a way that if I was in my tribal community or any tribal community, uh, I would just greet who I'm speaking to the audience as relatives. And, uh, and that's in our tribal language, which is known as Insukchin. Okay, and hang on a minute. We gotta, we gotta get those words. Say it, say it slowly. So say the greeting first again. It's why Pisnaxilk Dina Gillio Whitaker. Okay. Okay. And your tribal community, what did you call it again? Tribal language. The, the language is called Insukchin, and that's the language of the Sioux people. And that's a group. That's a, a band and tribal group that I'm affiliated with through the Colville Confederated Tribes of Washington State. So I'm that's my tribal affiliation. However, I'm in Southern California, which is where I grew up. So I grew up separated from my tribal culture. I'm of, of the first generation in that lineage to do so to do so um, my mother was from that community and uh, and the reason that I came to be raised away from that community was as a direct result of federal policy which wow. at the time I was born was known as termination so the federal government in the 1950s was actively, like it had been for centuries, trying to eliminate our existence. And Wait, that was official policy? Oh, yeah. Yeah. For the throughout the 1950s and 1960s. So 
what that meant was that they wanted to solve their Indian problem. And that's the same, the exact language that they called it, the Indian problem. And it, our existence was actually a problem for them. It's always been a problem. And the way that they envisioned solving the problem has varied from era to era, but in the, 20, the mid to late 20th century, it was about eliminating our political existence as tribal nations and communities. And so what that looked like, and then finally uh, assimilating us. So it's always been about, uh, you know, if not direct extermination, physical extermination, it's been about forced assimilation. So termination was about forced assimilation yet again. Yeah, well, yeah. The, the boarding schools have been in the news. And so we know about that, the separation of children and so that they could be in culturated uh, into American society. So I'm assuming that's part of that policy. Yes, that's definitely part of it. And my grandmother was a boarding school survivor. So my mother's mother had been through the boarding school system and that had, as it did for all families, it had deep and profound impacts on the families generations later. And this, that was true in my family. So, um, so without getting into the trauma of that, because it, it was ultimately a trauma-inducing and multi-generational trauma uh, situation, the, in, in, by the time the termination policy came around, it was, it was uh, just another push to bring, to take native people, separate them from their lands, get them off the reservations, get them absorbed into the, uh, to the, to mainstream America. And they would no longer then be legally classified as Indians. And the federal government would end its responsibility to them because because the relationship between the federal government and tribal nations has always been a political relationship based on treaties and those treaties made promises right before we go further i want to put a pin on the uh, uh, treaties i'm finding myself distracted because you said without wanting to go into the trauma and i'm thinking well wait a minute that's, that's part of the backdrop, right? So is there something you can say that you can share with us to help us understand that trauma? And then we can go to the treaties. Oh, well, that's a really big conversation and I can, and I can, in fact, I'm glad that you mentioned it because it's a way, it's a trail to where I hope we'll end up in this conversation about why it all matters today. Okay. So all right. part of the trauma had to do with separating families, which was official, you know, government policy was to separate families, separate children from their parents um, in order to get the land. That was what it was designed to do. And the boarding school policy was part of that. And and so the so that you can it's not hard to imagine the kind of trauma that that produced in families that then gets passed down through the generations, but it also gets added to in the mid twentieth century with this termination policy, which is also about separating people from land. Right. So so the the in the process of intentionally separating native people from their lands through programs like the boarding school uh, you know process in the in the late 19th and throughout the 20th century by the mid 20th century 50s and 60s something else starts to happen with with the federal push to separate families and it's about adoption and it's and uh, by 1978, there had been some studies that uncovered the fact that Native families had been having their children systematically removed from their families at a rate of 25 to 35%. And 90% of the time, those kids were being placed in white adoption and foster care. And so, so this is part of this trajectory 
of uh, of family, the breakup of native families that has this multi-generational uh, you know, trajectory and impact. And, and so then we'll talk later about, about how this factors in today and why it's still significant. Um, so all of that, all of that history has immediacy in my own family. And in, with my, my, my grandmother being a survivor of the boarding school, and then the, the trauma from that results in my family in a lot of alcoholism, a lot of abuse. Um, it's very, very common story. And- so, uh, hang, hang on a minute. 25% removed from families, they just walk in and snatch up your kid. How did that, how could that even happen? Well, that's a good question. And, but, but it did, it had, there was all kinds of ways that it happened in, local, you know, regional court systems. Um, we have a family, you know, I have that story in my family. My mother had a child taken from her. And, and it's, a, it's a very, I recently reconnected with three siblings that she had had that were, uh, one was taken from her, the other two were placements that she had had before I, I was born. Um, and, and it's all related, but uh, there, this altogether, my mother had six children and I'm the fourth born of those six children. And then there were two others that my two sisters that I was raised with, but I had these three other siblings. I wasn't intending to tell the story, but, but it's all part of that, the trauma that I was raised with in my family. And as a result of, again, federal policy. So uh, yeah, I mean, for people who don't know this history, I know that it sounds hard to believe, but it's really well established. And in Native families, these, these stories are all too common. And really, they're, you know, for people from Native families who are connected to living Native communities, there's almost no family that doesn't have these stories of boarding school and, and adoption, uh, these adoption stories. So okay. all of that really, I I'm I just uh you just gotta give me a minute here because I know a lot I've read a lot about uh, tribal communities I have, I, but I did not know about the adoptions the I guess the forced or semi forced adoptions so I'm just I'm sitting here thinking about the heartbreak of your mother who basically lost half of her children yep that's okay. exactly what happened yeah and so i mean the problem was so it was so uh entrenched that it led to the creation of a law in 1978 called the indian child welfare act congress created this law in order to protect tribal communities so that children would be, would be remain able to remain in their tribal communities if they needed truly needed to to be if they were you know if they really were endangered and you know in uh, in situations where they needed to be protected so it it created it affirmed tribal sovereignty it affirmed that tribes had power to retain to keep children within their cultures, because by and large, as I said, 90% of those kids were being placed in white adoptions and they're, and they're lost. When they are adopted out of their, their cultures, they're lost, many of them forever. So the growing, they grow up being native, but not knowing who they are. And, and that's, you know, an erosion of, of tribal communities. It's the erosion of culture and in all of that. So, so the law was passed. In I order remember to when the law was passed, by the way, because I was an activist then, a community activist. So I, uh, but I had no idea of this background to the act. Yeah. And it was a result of uh, Senator Aberesk. Senator Aberesk was a senator from South Dakota at the time who was a real champion for Native people. Uh, the studies 
that had been done showed conclusively that this was this was the pattern of the this the the outward adoption the take you know these these white adoptions so um so he championed that and and we've had this law ever since then and and his it has widely considered one of the most uh, important and um yeah, it's one of the most important laws in in the field of federal Indian law because of its power to affirm tribal sovereignty. Okay. And that's what it takes for tribes to have more power to keep their families together. So uh, so it's that's the backdrop of my own life and why you know how i come to be somebody raised outside my tribal culture so really i at, at a point in my life i came to realize that who i was as an adult person was by design was by the design of the federal uh, federal policy to be to, to be taken out of my cultural background and to forget who i was and so once I learned all of that, it, and I was in my thirties by the time I had figured all of this out. I was going to ask you that. I was going to ask you how old you were. Okay. Yeah, I was in my thirties and my mother didn't have the language for this. You know, we didn't, we didn't have the language. We didn't even have in our communities in until the nineties, the mid to late 90s, the talking about the boarding school history was something that wasn't even done. I, my grandmother never talked about it. That's part of that trauma. So, so I had to learn about that from going back to the reservation, reconnecting with family there, or this is where I learn about this history. And, and it gets told to me by my great uncle, who at the time was 75 years old and himself had survived the, this very abusive boarding school system. And, and when I learned that history, it, it was life-changing for me. So uh, once I learned that, I, I, I had changed, I decided that I was gonna spend the rest of my life uh, re-educating myself so that I could educate others about this history and finally start being honest about the real foundation of this country and so so that's what sets me off on this journey uh, I, I eventually become an artist so I was a artist in the native art world for a long time and my my goal and my sort of my my promise to do this process of education took that route eventually I went back to school and uh, I also got into journalism as a writer. That's what really led me back to school. And, and by then I was an older person in my 40s. And I was really clear about where, what I wanted out of my education. So I went into Native American studies at the University of New Mexico and then went to grad school. And by the time I got on this educational journey, I was really... I was really focused on environmental issues. Okay, that was always that, hang on a minute. So I want to ask you something. I heard recently that many, I've noticed that you're using the term Native American. And I've heard that, that some prefer the term American Indian. Have you heard that? Do you have any preference? No, I actually prefer that term myself. And generally I use that term, but I use them interchangeably. I don't care for the term Native American, but you know, it's sort of a standard for non-Native people to use that term. <laughs> so you're talking to a non-Native, so you're using my language and I'm busy searching, trying to make sure I'm using the correct terms. So henceforth in this, conversation let's call it American Indian sounds good okay so tell me why you prefer American Indian over Native American well I grew up being American Indian I grew up being Indian in in my generation that's the term that we use that's the term in my mother's generation and her generation so even though that's not a great term because it's a European term 
it's not a term, it's not a term we used for ourselves. That's what they called us. We called ourselves by our own names, but there is, you know, hundreds and hundreds of those names. And so, so the only, really the best term is those tribal terms, but that's really confusing for people. So, so, you know, there's, it just became one sort of umbrella term that Europeans use to distinguish themselves from the people that they found when they came here, right? right? So there was no, obviously not until Europeans got here, there was, there was no term Indian. Sure. We were just the people. We were just the people. And we called that in all our various languages. So uh, so once this process of European invasion happens, they use that term to separate themselves from us because we're the other from them. Right. Right. So, okay. so, and that's just how it's been for 500 years. So Native American is a term that really doesn't come into vogue until like the 1990s. Mm-hmm. And, and it's a, you know, a term of sort of political correctness, but I don't like it because it qualifies the term American. So American is, is centered, right? Ah. And so native, like it, like you would say, like African-American or, right. or, you know, Italian-American or Mexican-American, right? But it's the, the American that's being qualified and thus centered. Well, for native people, we're not, we didn't start out as Americans. We're native, we're indigenous. And so the American part is something very recent for us. And so I don't, I don't care for the centering of the American part of it. I'm Colville, I'm Sinaixed. So, but that's like, that's a term that I can't lead with that because it's too confusing. People don't know what that is. See, so. Okay. So it's very, it's very, complicated okay. indigenizing and decolonizing that's it okay. yes okay. so it's the opposite of colonizing right so we understand what colonizing is right, right. i mean a huge par- part of the world has been colonized for the last 500 years, all of Africa was colonized, all of Asia was colonized, the South Pacific was colonized. So, you know, and and arguably other places, uh, you know, because of Europeans going out and, you know, plundering and looting and all these places that that they did. So, you know, we have this, the, the reverse of colonizing which is about people reclaiming their lands, reclaiming their cultures and everything, which really starts in Asia and Africa. We can think about, if we think about India, right? And Mahatma Gandhi uh, kicking out the British in the 1940s and getting their country back. That's, that's a decolonizing history. Same thing, same thing happens in Africa during the 1950s and 1960s when Africans are kicking out their British and French and Dutch uh, and German and whoever else colonized Africa, kicking them out and, and, and forming their own governments. So the same thing is happening in, in the Western hemisphere are the Americas. So when we use that term, it, it follows on this historical trajectory of indigenous people reclaiming who they are and affirming their cultures and their sovereignty. But it's different in, in the US because you can't kick out the colonizers. Uh, the, the, the way that colonialism happens in, in North America is different than the way it happened in Asia and Africa, where they, where the reason is because in those places, the indigenous people remained in the majority, but that's not what happened in, in North America and like in the South Pacific or in New Zealand or Australia the colonizers came 
and they engaged in population transfer. They brought all their people to these places because it's not just resources they wanted, like in those other continents, it's the land that they want. So ah, they, that's a huge distinction that I had never thought about. So they came and stayed versus come right. and, and, and for lack of a better term, rape the land. So they came and stayed. They came to stay because it's the land that they want. And, and we call this settler colonialism. So settler, because it's about settlement, they right. come and they, they settle the land. But that settlement, that's really a sort of a benign term for the genocidal process that it ultimately becomes. So we talk about this process of settler colonialism being, being about replacing indigenous people, eliminating indigenous people in order to replace with a foreign population. And so this really shapes, this is the way we as scholars talk about it in the US and in Canada and Australia and New Zealand, especially Hawaii. Um, so where this process of, of population transfer happens and native people's populations are, are uh, diminished. And so we're surviving that. So who, those of us who are I, I indigenous today in these places are the survivors of these genocidal processes. So, so I want to understand, you talk about reclaiming how do you, can you reclaim what was rightfully yours when the settlers came to stay? What does reclaiming mean in that context? That's a great question. And that's something that we talk about a lot. So it, it looks like a lot of different things. For one thing, it's about reclaiming our identities as native people. So resisting that colonizing process that is aimed at absorbing us into the mainstream society where we cease to be indigenous and then just become American because that's what assimilation is, right? So resisting that and maintaining our identities as distinct communities with distinct origins in particular places because it's those the connection to those lands that form the identities of native people everywhere, not just here. And I mean, indigenous people are indigenous because of their relationship to place and to land and environments. And so, so that's like sort of like the beginning place of it. So reclaim and then reclaiming the things that were taken, things like language, things like culture and religion, family, um, everything, everything that it, that being indigenous encompasses and land. So like, that's like, that's a huge piece of it, like reclaiming land. So, so we've been well on the road to reclaiming those other things throughout the 20th century, reclaiming our languages and reclaiming, although that's still pretty, we're still fighting the erosion of our languages. I mean, our language, we're fighting that all the time uh, to get our languages back because we were forced into the boarding schools. We were forced to speak English, punished for speaking our languages. That led to language death or language um, erosion. So, you know, getting that back, getting reclaiming our, our food, even our food traditions. So all of these things are all on the table now. Okay, so for your tribal nation, your particular tribal nation, you mentioned reclaiming the land. Do you own, have property rights to any piece of land that can be the homeland? Me personally no, or our no, tribe? Your tribe, your tribal nation. Oh, we have a reservation. We have one of the largest reservations in Washington state. The Colville Indian Reservation is 1.2 million acres. 
Ah, okay. So that you have a place to point to the oh, Conville. Okay, I've heard of Conville. When you said it, I, I I see what I have to see proper nouns for me to understand them. I can't just hear them. So so now I see Colville. Yes. Okay. Right, right, right. So you have okay. So that's your and what's the what's the name of your tribe again? Call it's not called Colville. It's well, it's the that was a name that was given to us. Our reservation was established as the Colville Reservation um, because of an English explorer who set up a fort in the early 1800s. Yeah. So, like a lot of tribal names have, you know, similar stories, names that were given to them by the colonizers. Yeah. We, I so, had someone on the become, uh, we interviewed who, uh, is part of a group that's reclaiming uh, original names, tribal names, and saying, "Why in the world should why in the world should you live on Colville Reservation? That doesn't make any sense." Colville stumbled across the land. He he has no other ties to it. So so I so I know we know that movement is going on. Yeah. Well, we had a similar. We rejected changing the name of our reservation. I mean, that was a vote that only happened just in the last couple of years. There was a move to replace the name, recognizing that it's a colonized name, but, uh, and there was a beautiful name that was put forward as, as a better name, but the membership rejected it. And I don't even know why. Oh, that's so, interesting. But I think it's that, I don't know. That's a big conversation, but uh, yeah. it's people that those kind of things are very complex when yeah. it comes to naming. It's very complex. So, so the term environmental justice it implies the human element about how different populations of humans are differentially impacted by the processes of pollution and. Uh, things that, that expose them to greater risk and harm and things. So environmental justice always refers to human populations. Period. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that when we talk about that, that's, that's what that means. So um, justice for the environment is something we don't, that's, that's a different conversation. I mean, that that's getting into a really sort of esoteric realm of law um, that is sort of exemplified by something, for example, called the rights of nature. Okay. That, that's a legal construct, but that's something really abstract and different. Okay. So environmental justice always applies to human populations. Okay. Thanks for the so, distinction. Yeah. Okay. So indigenous environmental justice, what is that? So, well, so if we go back to, to thinking about the origins in, in the Black South, right, how Black communities are fighting against this, this environmental racism that they're being exposed to, this lays a foundation for, um, for, for a and gives birth to this language of environmental injustice and environmental justice, which takes shape you know, through the 1980s, 1990s, and onward. So, and it, and it has these very particular meanings. But my argument is that it means something different. It's similar, but it has a different meaning for Indigenous people because Indigenous people have a different relationship to land and their histories are different. So this concept of environmental racism focuses on the racializing of people, right? That, that these injustices happen to people who are already constructed as racial others, right? Like black people are racialized others. This is how we talk about it in, in the academic world. Um, so, this racializing, this focusing on race is something that 
uh, has the state, the United States has always had at its foundation. But for native people, the, the injustices that we've experienced are not as a result initially of being racially different. It's about being, it's about occupying the land. And, and so the injustices, the genocide, the land theft, all of that happens because we're simply the occupants, the original, the original people on the land and thus were obstacles to the formation of the state. And so uh, this is- You were distinguishable. You were distinguishable by an ethnic difference, let's, if we can use that word. True. That yes, there, there was definitely a difference. It was a, there was an ethnic difference, but what they wanted, what Europeans wanted, was the land. It didn't matter what color we were or what ethnicity we were. We were. All of that comes about over the over the centuries as this idea, these the, this process of othering people builds, and then. The, the processes of, of, um, of discrimination and all of the stuff that happens as a result of the inferiorizing of those who are non-white, right? So that, that's something that happens over time. It happens to different groups in different ways. It happens to native people, but it doesn't happen initially because we're racially or ethnically different. It's because we, we are obstacles to the taking of land. So, so, so that this colonization, this, the, this is what colonizing is. It's the, the invading of land, the pushing indigenous people off the land because they're there. And there's all these justifications that happen in the process of the legal system justifying why they should, why Europeans deserve the land more than indigenous people do. And, you know, they're, in fact, religion is a huge piece of this. It's not just because they're racially or ethnically different, it's because they're not Christian. Right. And, and so, so this is what complicates the, the, the history of why, or this is what complicates in my argument is why environmental justice for native people is different from other people because we have this history of having the land being unjustly taken. It's not just that we're being dumped on by toxic industry it's, or you know smokestacks or air pollution or anything like that. That's just a small piece. We experience all of that as well, but that's a much smaller piece of this larger history of being pushed off our lands and then all of the impacts that happen to our communities as a result of that. So, so environmental justice for native people has to encompass and take into account how, how those processes of dispossession happen and then shape our existence from there. So it's not just about environmental racism, it's about the taking of land and the constructing of an entire legal structure that keeps us separated from our lands. As you talked, I thought about the African experience in this country. Originally, Africans walked free, and there are some who say Africans came before the European settlers came. There's evidence of that. Mm -hmm. So originally, there was no distinction. There was no race. There were people were just here, Africans, uh, uh, Europeans, whatever, and traded freely. And I'm talking like in the 14th century, I mean, 13th, 14th, 15th century. Race became convenient when there was a profit motive. With the profit motive, we need people to till the lands. The Indians are running away and can escape. These Africans cannot because they are easily identifiable. 
that's when race became a convenient ploy to distinct make that distinction so that now we can claim inferiority they are inferior now we can claim these things yeah but that's not entirely true okay because native, native people were enslaved yes so it wasn't they it wasn't that they could run away in fact when the the way that slavery affected indigenous populations was that they were shipped off the continent in in general that's like the first uh, incidents of slavery that we know of happens as a result of uh, King Philip's War uh, in in the six, 1670s and 1675. So King Philip's War happens, or see, wait a minute, oh, I always get my dates mixed up. Um, so there's a series of wars, the Pequot War that happens in the 1630s and then King Philip's War in the 1670s. And so there's documentation of the native people who are the the um, prisoners of war from that, and they get shipped off to the Caribbean, and so that happens for a good well into the 1700s. Then there's a whole other way that native slavery happens up until at least the turn of the 20th century. And that's documented by the book, by the work of uh, Andres Resendez in um, a text called The Other Slavery. And so, um, so he looks at uh, this 400 year experience of native slavery, which is a very, very different um, look to it and a very different way that it plays out because it's, because it's illegal. It's an illegal trade, uh, an illegal practice. And it happens in these different ways that look very different from uh, the legalized kind of chattel slavery that happens uh, up until 1865 with, with African populations. But in general, if you look at, because it wasn't called slavery for native people, it was called different things. For example, in, uh, I mean, well into um, the state, like for example, in the state of California, when the state of California was formed in 1850, they passed a law uh, pretty, pretty quickly called the Act to Protect, something like, it's very, it's one of those weird convoluted titles, the act to protect the governing of Indians or something like that. And it's, 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 but it's not what it sounds like. It's something very much more sinister where they're, they uh, created uh, a system of, a, they called it apprenticeship where they're taking, they're separating native families they're taking native children, putting them into basically uh, systems of indentured servitude or servitude. Um, where they're uh, placed in, you know, service to white families. Um, and something really similar happens in the boarding school era as well. These, with these out, these, uh, these outing programs where native people are placed uh, in, they, because these were, these were not schools designed to educate children in academics. It was systems to teach children how to be of service to white people. And so, so, so it's about training them to be, um, you know, servants, basically. And that's how it was for girls. The girls were trained to be servants to white people in domestic situations. Boys were trained to be, and it was all with no compensation. So, um, so this is, this is why it's the way that this, these histories of Native people being put to work, taking out of their communities is not for their own good, even though it was always said that way. It was, and it wasn't, it, it just didn't look the same as it did with, with African people, with black people. It was different. So, so and, you, and it was illegal. Like they couldn't, they couldn't say slavery, that these native children are, you know, we're, we're going to make slaves out of them because it's not legal. So they used all these different terms to, to describe these processes of non-consensual, you know, um, bondage, really. So as I'm hearing you, that one of the distinctions 
several of distinctions. With Africans, that it was chattel slavery, as you said, which means I have no rights whatsoever. There's no, there's the law doesn't come in come into being except to say I'm the equivalent of chattel and property. So that's with Africans. With American Indians, it was some form of indentured servitude by whatever name where Indians had rights but were still obliged to serve against their will. And there was this whole indoctrination process going on saying, we're teaching you how to do this for your own good. Yeah, I think that's a really good way of characterizing it, yes. Okay, so that's the distinction. So when you say there was not racializing, I'm still confused about this and I wanna break this down. When you oh, I'm not saying they're not racialized because they were. Oh, oh okay. They were racialized. Oh, absolutely they were. But but it comes later, right? So this is over, we're talking over a period of centuries. Right. It happens, it happens later. So so yes, I mean, absolutely native people are okay. racialized. And and that is the problem. It that's that is precisely the problem that native people are racialized, understood in this racialized way. And there's and I'll explore when you're ready, we can get into why that's a problem and okay. and why it would I want you to explain the alternative because. On the one hand, we want recognition for tribal sovereignty. We want customs and all of that. How do you keep, this is the same dilemma when the whole issue in the black uh, community and white community of colorblindness. So we're trying to explain to people, no, we don't want you to be colorblind, but we don't want to be negatively racialized, stereotyped, oppressed, and discriminated against. So yeah. you understand. So I'm asking you, explain that same dilemma and what you want in in opposition to the negative racializing. So the distinction, of, which is really hinges on tribal sovereignty, this is a this is a political distinction. So native people's relationship to the state, as in the United States as a state, is based on a political relationship. It's not based on their racialization. Got it. Okay. Because we don't so, have anything like that. Right, right. For for all other ethnic communities in the US, this racialized identity is is subsumed by their Amer their citizenship their their americanness right and right. it's a cultural distinction right okay. exactly with native people you have those distinctions as well but it's based on their political relationship to the state and that's the crux of it. That's what hinges on, th that's what this different hin difference hinges on. And, and the reason that it's important is because if we go back to the Indian Child Welfare Act of 1978, the reason that that law was passed was to stop the hemorrhaging of children from their families, right. but it, and I said that it affirms tribal sovereignty. So, uh, so it gives them power for these communities, which are nations, tribal nations, to protect their own communities. So, but what's happened, and this, is, uh, this has been ongoing for some years, there, this law has erected obstacles to in the adoption world. So, it, it makes it more difficult for non-native people to adopt native children. And the adoption industry doesn't like, the adoption industry, which is by and large run by religious conservatives, don't like those kinds of obstacles. And so they have been fighting to, to undermine and or completely 
overturned that law, the Indian Child Welfare Act. Really? Yes. And the logic that they're using, they've been working for years to drive cases to the Supreme Court based on the argument that Native people, by virtue of their racial categorization, have are, it's a violation of the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution. So their argument is that Native people, as a racial group, are given preference, and that's unconstitutional. Oh, my word in heaven. So it's a real convoluting of that logic of equal protection that they're using against Native people in order to undermine their political existence. And, wow. and there is a big conversation about why that would be happening at this point in time. But they've, I said that they've been trying to drive cases to the Supreme Court, which they succeeded in 2013 with the baby Veronica case. They um, didn't overturn the law, but it delivered a blow. It delivered a blow to that law. So, but now there's another case called the Brackeen case, which has been making its way through the lower courts. And it's brought, this, this, uh, this case has been brought by five states. So this is a very organized, very uh, uh, coordinated attack based uh, by states like Texas, Louisiana, I think Oklahoma, and I can't remember the two other states, but they have joined up with, uh, I think it's two families to, uh, and, and really powerful uh, law firms, including one law firm that uh, this Gibson and Dunn, which is a law firm that, um, that works to defend big oil, fossil fuel companies, big corporations. So they've got these guys in their back pockets, well-funded to, uh, to fight this, uh, the Indian Child Welfare Act and to, to, uh, to undermine it. And, uh, many people think, you know, legal, very, well-trained legal minds see this as an opportunity to, uh, to unravel the foundation of tribal sovereignty. Why? Because tribes still control 5% of the land in the United States. And most of that land contains really valuable resources that also contain legal obstacles to getting at those resources. Okay, so so all of this is tied together in the way that I argue it in in environmental justice, this conversation of environmental justice, and why it's critically important to understand why environmental justice is different for Native people than for all other people, because we're still trying to protect that the five percent of the land base that we still control in our reservations uh, and beyond that where we have treaty rights to non-reservation land too so uh, so we're still we're still fighting that impulse of the settler state to take away every square inch of land and thus our identities as native people i thank you that's compelling and for me riveting. I had not understood before now the political and legal ramifications of the environmental justice applied to tribal communities, tribal nations. So yeah, and this case, this case, and its reason it's important right now is because the Supreme Court is arguing the, the Brackeen case this fall. So September, I think it's September. And think about knowing what we know about the Supreme Court. It, does, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to illustrate the profound danger that we're in. I was raised that everything hinges on the Supreme Court 
And I, uh, and so I would argue with my friends over these last two decades, what's most important with voting? I say Supreme Court. The, that's what's most important. And people said, oh no, this is important. And oh no, this is important. And healthcare is important. And education, whatever, same set. No, the Supreme Court is what the foundation of everything. And so I feel like I'm saying a big, I told you something to my friend. And so here we are, here we are. And people now see that as the court goes, so goes the nation. And we have to figure out how to preserve the court and well, not preserve the current court, how to restore the court and how to have, how to have good old fashioned citizenship where people know the issues and vote. So that's, I had to give my little speech because this is a source of continuous yeah, frustration. I mean, right. But I mean, there's a big conversation there too, because I mean, if we think about, we know that the Supreme Court we have right now is because of the Trump years, but it wasn't because people didn't get out and vote for Hillary, right? I mean, it was, it was not the popular vote that failed. Yep. It was the electoral college. So people who are listening to this, and who are motivated to do something, what can they do? So it's really important to, to, be, to understand these distinctions that we've been talking about, about why this word, these words, these frameworks that we think in, in terms of social justice. I think that uh, in, uh, you know, on the political left, Okay, in, in the realms of social justice, we have all these different kinds of conversations. We have racial justice, we have environmental justice, we have, uh, and, it, and, it, and race is always, and, and multiculturalism. So we're, we, we adhere to, uh, to and, we, and we, we, we celebrate multiculturalism and that's great. But there tends to be a process of conflating everybody into that, into that sort of the melting pot theory, like, oh, you know, and celebrate the multicultural state. And, and, and that's, that's something that we should do. But for Native people, it's a problem because of all the things that we were just talking about, about the subsuming of Native people into that multicultural um, pot. And reducing them to just a culture like it's the that's not that's that's assimilation for us that's just more assimilation it's we need to people need to be adept at and versed in oh the united states is really it's really a, a multinational country you think of some place, for example, like Bolivia, who Bolivia has adopted itself as the plurinational Bolivian state. There's a recognition of the state of Bolivia being comprised of multiple nations of people. The U.S. is in effect the same thing. We, the U.S. is a country that not only is a multicultural country, it's a multinational country that contains hundreds of tribal nations. It's built on the foundation of, of hundreds of different nations of communities. And so that's a big difference than just saying, oh, Indians, you know, because we're all, we're, we're conditioned in our education system the, the erasure of native people is foundational to the US. It's, we, it's built on, uh, oh, there used to be Indians here, but they're not really here anymore because they're gone. They're, but even those who know that there are still some Indians here, they don't, because we're not trained to understand tribes as nations with territories that they're still living on and still protecting and defending. The point is that native people have very different views of land and environment. They don't view land in the same way 
that that dominant society does in terms of the commodification, for example. The US in, in the US land is just a commodity. It's something that is bought and sold, it's traded, it has monetary value. It's, um, it's not valued for, for um, the life that it gives. For native people, that's the difference. Native people understand themselves as emerging from these very particular ecosystems. And because of, uh, because of that, this relationship, so it's a relation, a kinship, uh, a understanding the kinship with the natural world, which creates, it creates a different set of values. And the values from there are about reciprocity, about respect, about responsibility and 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 it's that's not the kind those are not the kinds of values that dominant society places uh, on land and environment because of this co commodification of the natural world so it's that that sense of kinship that protected, that were built in protections why native people were here for thousands and thousands of years without destroying the environment. Yes. So given that reality, what's the implication? So the implications is that understanding that though that kind of framework of thinking is what created sustainable societies on this continent for thousands of years. And it's, it's looking to that, to those, to the difference in values that hold the keys for sustainability, human sustainability in the future. That's the argument that I am making and other, other scholars too, not just in the US, but this is indigenous knowledge. It's very common uh, from continent to continent in communities that have very long-standing relationships to place. What can people listening to this do? What they can do, right? And this is always a tricky question because we want instant answers, right? This is not something, it's not an instant answer kind of thing, right? It's, it's, it's a way of changing your thinking. Okay, I got it. Change your thinking. So your call is for people to change their thinking, to recognize and uh, uh, fight against using economic measures, property measures, ownership as the true measure of what we should be in the world and what we should be on this land. Right. Yes. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, it's some, some would call that Marxism. I'm, I'm not sure that I would call it that, but, but it's definitely a different way of valuing the earth that we live on. Valuing the earth we live on. Yeah. That's because beautiful. clearly the system that we're stuck in is what's compromising our ability to survive into the future. So it's adapt and change or perish. That's where we're at. And indigenous knowledge holds the key to those, to a different way of thinking and viewing the world. But, you know, I keep finding pockets of hope like you. I keep, I keep looking at all over. I, I, it's like I can feel it. These disconnected movements all over that are coalescing towards a, a more nobler vision of what we could all be on this land. So how can people reach you? Uh, let's see, I'm, I'm on social media. I'm on Twitter. I don't, I don't engage with it that much, but I, I'm on Twitter. I have a Facebook page. I am on Instagram. And um, I have a website that's www.dgconsulting.org. Okay. W I'm easy to find. Google on my name and lots of, lots of stuff comes up and I'm easy to find. Okay. It's been, a, it's been perplexing at times, confusing at times, and enlightening most of the time. 
I am so delighted you were willing to give up your time. Do you have a copy of your book handy? Put a copy. You can. There you go. Oh yeah, there we go. Okay. So thank you kindly. Uh, uh, it's been a delight. Thank you. Same here. It was very delightful talking to you. Appreciate it. Me. I had not really heard that before. What she's asking us to do is to recognize these the distinctions, to recognize these distinctions and to honor them as tribal nations. My closing comment to you is please take your citizenship seriously this fall. I was talking with a relative recently who said she didn't get very much in politics, so she wasn't keeping up with what was happening. I explained to her, I was raised and taught about the rights and responsibilities of citizenship, which includes voting, keeping up with issues, and understanding the policy issues that would inform my voting. Hoping you're doing the same. As you know, we have a big election coming up in 2022. We've already seen the effects of what happens if enough people don't vote. Hope you will. Thanks for listening.